As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to Glad Tidings, the Athletics Everton Football Club podcast with me, Greg O'Keefe and Paddy Boyland and there's plenty, as ever really, plenty to talk about in the strange, wonderful, frustrating and joyful, inverted commas, world of Everton. Um, we've got the football, the, ma- the games are coming thick and fast. Um, obviously, Fulham on Sunday was nowhere near as joyful as we hoped it might have been and then Man City was just, uh, well, playing Man City, wasn't it? Playing against the machine. But we'll discuss that and plenty more in this week's episode, including our, our classic game, which is a derby stonker, um, which I think everyone will remember in recent memory. But let's start with uh, reacting to that Man City um, defeat. Pad, you you covered the game for us. Um, I would say through, you know, through the, your hands over your face, but in, in some respects, it, it wasn't a surprise to see City be so formidable, but I think you made the point in your piece, which I totally agree with. For me, sometimes the narrative around it and Carlo, <laughs> I don't know why we fed into this, was it felt very like Moise-esque. It felt almost as if, well, you know, the the, the best big teams come to Everton and, and they outplay us and uh, oh, we didn't really have a chance and we tried to contain them but couldn't. What do you want us to do? And you made the point, well, can't it be a bit more than that um, with the money we spent? Uh, I added that you didn't say that about the money, but what was your what was your take on it? Yeah, I mean, we saw that in the tactics as well, didn't we? It yeah. was Everton attempting to go toe to toe with with Manchester City at this moment in time. And if we're honest, if they had have done that, then they'd have probably been blown away even earlier. So I do get that, but obviously there's something quite stark. And something a little bit destabilising about hearing an Everton manager speak in those terms. Um, realism, pragmatism, whatever you want to call it. In the main, for about 50 to 60 minutes, I thought the game plan actually worked all right. And it took a moment of magic from Riyad Mahrez, who I thought was City's best player on the night, to kind of pick the lock. But when we look back at this week, I think it's going to be less about the Manchester City game and all the regrets going to be on what happened against Fulham. Um, 
it's all well and good sides will lose to live um, to, to Manchester City. We saw Liverpool get get battered by them. We've seen numerous other sides lose comfortably because they're mm. choking out at the at this moment in time. City, um, full of fantastic players, and and obviously had people like Kevin De Bruyne on the bench, mm. just absolutely ridiculous depth. But it's that game against Fulham. I think that's put a little bit of pressure on Everton now because if they were to lose the derby as well, that would be three on the spin, and it would kind of prolong that poor run of form. So I think Ancelotti, and he's, he's, he's kind of alluded to this already, I think he's going to look back on Fulham as the missed opportunity. If they'd beaten Fulham, whatever they got against City almost would have been a bonus. And yeah, look, that that's not where we want Everton to be at all. We want Everton to progress. But there's a bit of realism as to where they are at the moment in this, in this project, if you can call it that. It's still long-term. It still needs to be something that happens over a period of time through successive oh. windows. Um, and it's just, I think it just brought us, not to be negative, I think it just brought us crashing down to earth a little bit, kind of the struggles against some of the lesser sides. But then also the fact that at this moment in time, they are not going to be able to compete with the Manchester City. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, and even, you know, with our keep, obviously we, 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 without Calvert-Lewin, which was a huge blow, but even with Rodriguez, I think we, we lack the quality to cause a side like City headaches um, and, you know, as you say, intimated there, Guardiola has had many, many, many more windows um, than Ancelotti's had. So there's that. It's early in, in Ancelotti's tenure and his ability to recruit play, players who could begin to compete, but it was still chastening nonetheless. And uh, equally chastening is the fact that <laughs> obviously we have to play them again in the cup. Um, it's just... I made the point myself and I know it's true that you'd have to beat them to, to win the cup, but the size, the task could perhaps never felt bigger after seeing that, that dry run, if you like, does it? No. And obviously it's the draw that nobody would have wanted city quite clearly the best team in the country now. Mm. And to be honest, as a, as I put on Twitter after the game, after the game, I don't even think it's really close. I couldn't tell you who the second best team in the country are at the moment maybe it's maybe it's Manchester United, but they're to me overly reliant on Bruno Fernandez and a bit flawed themselves in in a number of other ways. City far and away the best side. So for Everton to get them at Goodison, in a perverse sense, I think it's the worst possible draw they could have had. More so even than playing City at the Etihad for, for what it's <laughs> worth, because although Everton would approach the game much the same way and largely defend and look to respond. For, for whatever reason, there's a bit of a hoodoo at Goodison at this moment in time. Um, not able to get the results we expect from an Everton team on, on home turf and a much, much better record away from home. So it is, it is, it is very tough. It is, it's, it's very, very tough. You'd have wanted to play them ideally later on in the competition when you got through another round or two. Um, but we're here now and that, this, is, this is what we've got to contend with. They City have a have a game the midweek before. I think they're playing Munching Glad back in the in the Champions League, which which should be difficult for them. Let's not forget that they're fighting on all fronts. So it'll be. Uh, they've got a Carabao Cup final a few months later. They're still in the Champions League at that point. Premier League, we all know they're running away with that. So I think you've just got to hope that maybe they've got other priorities and that, yes, of course, this is the side that comes out and face Everton will still be strong, but it might not necessarily be as strong as it would have been 
were they not in some of those other competitions? Mm. Like you say, though, if Everton want to win the FA Cup, then inevitably that means beating a Manchester City, whether it be in a quarterfinal, uh, third round or the final. So um, it's going to be another test. It's going to be another test. Um, and and yeah, it could, it could have been much kinder, couldn't it? <laughs> it certainly could have been. Um, I suppose on the positive side as well, it's given that sparring session has given Ancelotti a, a, a further taste of, of how City, how his team can relate to City and maybe it's given him a lot of food for thought to go away and prepare um, a better second take at it. Perhaps maybe he's learned some lessons too. Um, certainly he will have learned lessons from Fulham, uh, a game that I had the misfortune to cover on Sunday. Um, it was Newcastle 2.0 for me at home. You know, another, another game where once again this infuriating trend to be completely incapable of uh, imposing ourselves on supposedly lesser teams, uh, you know, unable to, when they're unable to score first and, and, and break them down, um, they sort of confidence or their attitude dwindles even further. And then they end up getting, get paying for it. Uh, I thought Fulham were really good actually, you know, in fairness and Everton were clearly palpably tired after the, the tie with the cup tie with Tottenham. But I just can't stomach totally as mitigation for that that game. Two nils, you know, a comfortable two nil defeat. Um, the tiredness, I can understand it, but something else was concerning me, and um, it's just the pattern more than anything else. And and actually, as Ancelotti said himself after City, it, it's beating those, it's winning those sorts of games rather that is going to mean whether they can fulfil their ambition to get into Europe or not. And at the moment, the suggestions are they, they don't know how to do it. They did earlier in the season, but not now. Yeah, they've lost their groove in, in terms of getting on the ball and dictating games. I think they did it, as you've mentioned, pretty well at the start of the season, looking back on games against sides like West Brom and, and Brighton. Even going away to Crystal Palace, I thought Everton were quite dominant in spells there and looked to be kind of the aggressor in the match. What's happened since, I think, as Everton have kind of picked up injuries and looked to be a bit more defensive, a bit more pragmatic. They've almost forgotten how to do some of those things. <laughs> and it, it's quite clear as well that they do need injections of quality in future windows as well. Yeah. So I think midfield is another one they'll look at. Um, right back, long-term is something we've said. We've been on record as saying that they they have looked at in, in what they did in the summer. Um, a little look in January, but not much. And, and then potentially again this summer. There, there are areas in in this team that you can see can quite readily and easily be improved. What, what I would say is you speak about the physical condition of the players and they were tired. It's quite clear. They, they had 120 minutes against Spurs that midweek and Ancelotti needed to go about things in a, in a slightly different way. His, his response was to talk about the f- physical condition of the players. And he, I think he said quite pertinently before the game, we're not able to do the things that we normally would. And we're not in the best condition for this match, which was a bit of a warning sign anyway. But you, you talk about problems establishing a foothold and um, dictating games. I think what happens is they, they, they've got this structure defensively with the four centre-backs or how, however you want to describe it. And everyone knows their role and they, they keep it tight and they deprive space when they make a more progressive team selection. So against Fulham, you saw um, 
proper wingers, uh, Richarlison and James looking to, to, to play as almost like a two, uh, Sigurdsson in the midfield, Gomez there. There's a lot of supposed ball players in that team with, with kind of flying fullbacks. And I think they almost go from one extreme to the other and they've not found the balance. So it, it's all well and good having good attacking players in the final third, but they just didn't get the ball. They didn't ever establish themselves further back on uh, kind of on Fulham and, and in the midfield. They, they never got to grips with the game. And, and yes, physicality was an issue. I think it's a big issue against a side like Fulham, because if there's one thing that Fulham do really well, it's break with speed. Look at Loftus-Cheek, Anguissa off the bench. Uh, Adamola Luckman, as we all know, is great at carrying the ball at pace mm. um, down the pitch. So it was almost like it was, it, was a, it was a bad matchup on the day for Everton. And that doesn't excuse anything. They, they still should have been much, much better. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we're, we're seeing a number of different problems. We see problems when sides really press, as Fulham did. But, and maybe Southampton earlier in the season, Leeds earlier in the season at home. But we're also seeing problems when sides sit really deep like West Ham and numerous other teams. Everton's kind of lack of creativity beyond one or two individuals who have an enormous burden on them. So, um, yeah, it's another reminder this week of where Everton are. Um, Let's not forget they're still in seventh. They're still, at this moment in time, within touching distance of those fourth, fifth, sixth places, the ones that should guarantee European football, which which is the aim this season. But it just feels as though they're going to need to improve. They're going to need to pick up. They're going to need to show something more to continue their charge and to to really make headway here. Um, just lacking a bit, and um, certain issues will have to be addressed in the summer too. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with twenty four seven US based live customer service from Discover. Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Premieres May 2nd on FX. Stream on Hulu. Um, the, st- the stadium was some good news, though, in the week. We, have, we obviously got the news that um, the Bramley Moore planning application has been recommended for approval. That doesn't clearly mean it's been approved. We'll hear about that on February the 23rd. But it, it did feel like a, a significant uh, milestone because <clears throat> from my, from, from my sort of view, it would, it, would take, it would be very unusual for certainly the council now to... Um, to not grant planning permission. And then, of course, you're just looking at what happens next in terms of how the level of scrutiny the government's put it under. And there will be some. Um, we wrote about that in our explainer on the site. Um, if you have any questions about the stadium, 
please do check that out because I think it kind of addresses most of of what we 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 need need to know up to now. Um, and then it's I mean, I suppose what one thing that emerged is that it's it, it's likely now almost certain that it's going to be a year setback or a season setback when we may well be playing at the Bramley Moor Stadium or whatever it's going to be called. Um, but I still think it's, it's not a, a long way away. It's a three-year build they're talking about, 2024-25 season. For me, I don't know about you, Pat, but for me, it all just feels a bit more real now. And uh, clearly, 23rd is going to be a big day anyway. But then it'll be the weeks afterwards, won't it? And, and hearing how much government is going to take notice of the the sort of UNESCO... Um, and the, the the minority of of people based in the UK who don't want it to happen, um, but I feel a lot more positive about it. I don't know about you. Yeah, really do. Um, good positive news, and I think the big thing here is that the city council's planning officer has, as you've said, recommended it for approval. That doesn't mean that it will be approved, but it's a it's a positive indication as to what's likely to happen, despite we must say, objections from heritage lobbies and heritage bodies. It, 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 it's big for Everton. It, it's big for the city as a, as a scheme. <clears throat> it's something they need to, to use as a driver for jobs, growth, not just for Everton Football Club, but for the, for the city as a whole. And um, there, are, there are a number of hurdles now, and, no, and kind of new hurdles that they need to overcome, including getting through that meeting on the 23rd, which they should do. And then the government automatically taking a little bit of a look at this. Um, We've written for quite a while now, it'll be no news to subscribers of the Athletic site and app, that the government would look at a project of this magnitude. That's different to it being called in, in quotation marks. If it is called in, um, and there's no indication of that at the moment, that'll be a much longer process where there's kind of real scrutiny. but all the indications so far have been that kind of people on a national level are mainly pre- preferring to go with the decisions are made locally. So, so that's why the 23rd feels so important. This is a positive omen um, and a positive indication ahead of that um, meeting on the 23rd. And like you say, it all just feels a little bit more real now. We're moving towards the point at which everything can start looking to get spades in the ground they're talking about spring summer provided all goes well over the next couple of weeks and then potentially i think it's 150 weeks is the, is the guideline factoring in potential delays with covid 150 weeks is the build schedule which would if you do if you do the maths that'd be 2024 25 the stadium's just massive like i say it's not not only for the city and it, yeah. it should be a big driver for what is uh, a derelict and underused part of the city centre, um, the North Docks area. But I think also for Everton Football Club, it's the kind of it's one of the things that they're hanging their hat on with regards to the long term sustainability of the club. Yeah, absolutely. Um, from a financial point of view, it'll be a really sad day when Everton leave Goodison for, for a number of reasons, emotionally more than anything else. But it's hard to argue with the case for. The move, just in terms of what it should bring financially to to club Everton, need to kind of get with the times in a modern sense. Got to feel really old saying that, but get with the times <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a modern sense and start to bring in 
kind of increased revenue stream. So, so that would be part of the good news, like you say, really, really good news, and hopefully only the start of the good news. And we we can we can soon move towards something even more ta- tangible than that. Yeah, fingers crossed for that. Let's hope so. It's, it's massive. The the alternative doesn't bear thinking about really. I, uh, I agree. It's um, it's something that the club almost feels like the the future of the club hangs on to a to a degree. Um, well, one young man who who has got a future at the club, it would seem more than ever, uh, after very very fluctuating uh, fortunes since he broke into the team in 2016-17 under Ronald Koeman. Uh, sorry, 20. Have I have I got that season wrong there, Pad? When was it under Koeman? 2017. So he he made his debut, Tom Davis, against Norwich. Now uh, I'm going to say that was 2016-17. I think it was. I think it was. And then obviously established himself the year after under under Ronald Koeman. Um, yeah, that's just my that's my brain and my memory there. So if, if it's wrong, apologies. No, yeah, I think you're right. It was Norwich, wasn't it? Debut, yeah, at that end of the season, yeah, yeah. Under David Unsworth, yeah, uh, three 0 win, and Kieran Dahl also played. So that shows how how things have progressed in the years since, doesn't it? <laughs> it certainly does. Um, we've done a piece on him on, on the on the app and on the site today. Um, it's, I think I'm really proud of it. I think it's a really interesting insight into what Tom Davies is about and how he's weathered the storm of criticism that he has uh, he has endured. And I'm not saying that the critics uh, have, have been wrong. Um, some of it's been, it, the, the volume and the way it's expressed on social media has been wrong. But certainly people, and I, I myself, have, have argued that he, I've felt he hasn't been good enough at times, but he certainly is at the moment, I, I would say. So me and Paddy have done a, a real sort of like... Um, a real deep look into how he's done it really. What is it about him that makes him able to keep plodding on and, and, and now to be on the cusp or to be in the midst of some sort of uh, revival really. But it's just one of plenty of really strong pieces on the side today. Daniel Taylor has got a fantastic read on as well uh, about a footballer who's jailed for murder. Uh, it was a case I didn't know anything about. It's definitely a Netflix series. I'd recommend that highly as well. Um, and we've got an offer on the site at the moment too. It's in time for the Champions League returning this week and there's, there's no better time to sign up really and get all that coverage. It's until February the 25th and we're offering new subscribers a half price annual subscription. So that works out less than a pound a week for an entire year. To redeem that limited time only offer, go to theathletic.com um, forward slash Everton pod. So that's theathletic.com forward slash Everton pod. And if you're enjoying the show as, as well, please do leave a review. But back to Tom Davis. Um, we we enjoyed writing this one, didn't we? It was um, setting the cliches about him aside. I think we'd fair to say we both kind of learned a bit more about his, uh, his psyche, didn't we? We, we did, and kind of a, a lot of research has gone into it and um, a lot of hard yards, I think, on our part. Um, less hard yards than, than we've seen from Tom Davis of late, though, I have, I have to say. Um, one of the things that really impressed me when we kind of delved a little, little bit deeper into his story is the desire for self-improvement and the de- desire to keep getting better and, to an extent, also prove people wrong. Um, we know that he's kind of split opinion at best, certainly did last season and, and the season before. And really interesting stuff. When I spoke when I spoke to Leon Osman for this piece, he was talking about how that goal against Manchester City in a perverse way um, has been really difficult, will have been really difficult for, for a player like Davis because it creates the expectation 
that Davis is capable of doing those kinds of things and producing those performances every single week. And it, let's be honest, that was a once-in-a-lifetime goal, the kind of goal that supporters will still be talking about in 40, 50 years' time. Yeah. Um, and a win that supporters will be talking about in 40, 50 years' time. So maybe there's been a little bit of an unrealistic expectation around Tom Davis. And I think more than anything, as we've said before, he's obviously struggled a little bit given the succession of managers and the upheaval at Everton, more or less since David Moyes left. What he's benefiting from now, and I think this is quite clear, given his improvement, is the stability brought by the Ancelotti regime. The fact that he's got a manager that doesn't just say, go out and run about and make yourself a box-to-box midfielder. Because as we know, (laughs) football is about so much more than that. It's much more kind of guided feedback. Look at Alan, how he's playing the number six role. We want you to do a similar thing and we want you to work on your positional intelligence, the the way you move the ball. Not everything has to be kind of a a really raking ball over the top of the defence or kind of a a slide roll past the Dominic Calvert-Lewin. At times, it's good enough to just win the ball back, be aggressive and play the ball to a Hammers or a Luca Dean or or somebody else in the side. I think that simplification's helped, as has kind of this work ethic and drive that we've, we've always seen in Tom Davis, to be fair. I think whatever you whatever you could say about him as a footballer, I think it's always been quite clear to me that uh, from what we've heard and from what people say on the record about him, that he's he's one of those guys that, that really does put a shift in and want to make things work mm-hmm. at Everton. So it was great to tell that side of the story, that kind of how the, the renaissance, the resurgence has come about, if, if you want to call it that. But my, my favourite bits from a kind of sentimental point of view are always hearing about how he interacts with the city of Liverpool. Um, bit of a throwback, bit of a one-off. Um, harks back to a different era completely where players... Lived amongst us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's entirely right because um, quite, quite often now, and I do understand this, by the way, but quite often now, a lot of footballers that play in the Northwest live just outside Manchester in kind of gated communities and um, look to keep themselves to themselves. And, and maybe I'd be the same in, in their, their circumstances. Maybe I'd want to lead a quiet, quiet lifestyle away from the field. <laughs> yeah. da- Davis does the, does the opposite. You see him out and about around Liverpool. He still lives in the city centre. He still interacts with fans, kind of goes about his business. Um, but we spoke to somebody from the, um, the Sunday Supper Project, um, which is, um, it's not a charity, but it's a group of volunteers who, go out every Sunday with hot food and soup and sandwiches and look to feed the homeless community, the growing, unfortunately, homeless community in the city. Davis has been a part of that now for a good while. Um, and as even before kind of formally being associated with those guys, he was doing stuff of his own accord, buying stuff and, and giving it, buying stuff from restaurants, buying stuff from um, the shops and giving them to uh, the homeless people on Bold Street. So um, that, that was one of the parts I really enjoyed, to be honest, mate. It was kind of hearing a bit more about the work he does, how he gets involved in the city. And I think he should be proud of that. And I think Everton should be proud of, of who he is as a, as a person. The good thing is now the two are combined for me. Uh, we're seeing stronger performances from him. We're seeing him really look like he's a part of this Everton squad now. An important part, not always a guaranteed starter, but somebody at the very least who can come in and do a job. And when you've got that and you put it all together, not only for me is it a fascinating story, but it also kind of 
shines a light, I think, a little bit on what it means to be a local lad playing for, for Everton Football Club, which was which is what we were going for, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And it was just interesting as well to hear about how he reacted to the captaincy under Marco Silva, which um, was was has long been a bugbear for me and was at the time. Paddy, Paddy knows all about my, my take on that. I think that was one of the more baffling and, and very unhelpful decisions that Silva made during his time at Everton. Um so it was interesting to hear the pressure that put him under and um, speak to people who, who knew him best, who know him best, uh, about how he's able to maintain his uh, individuality in the in the sort of goldfish bowl. But the uh, certainly being part of that community in Bowl Street and, and being so plugged into a city massively helps. And um, I hope you get some insight from it too. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. going to wrap up by obviously ahead of the derby on Saturday we'll we'll touch on that briefly and then we'll talk about a classic game really a fantastic game if you remember it from the 2013-14 season Everton 3 Liverpool 3 but let's quickly uh, touch on the actual derby Um, it's and I mean, who likes Anfield derbies? I'm yet to find anybody who looks forward to these <laughs> games. And the record there is clearly uh, is, is the reason for that. But what what should begin to make of this, Pad? Who, who likes Anfield derbies? I think Liverpool fans. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> apart from they, Liverpool fans, sorry. Yeah, yeah. They, uh, yeah. they, they, um, they, they do because they tend to win them and tend to win them quite comfortably. And what we've seen... Since 2010, Everton's last most side derby win has been a pattern on the whole. I'd seen Liverpool really in the ascendancy at Anfield in these games, and a lot of the games at Goodison have tended to be draws. And it, I mean, it's quite clear that that record needs to change. It needs to change as soon as possible. It, it's far from good enough. Um, so that 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 always that that always comes up, doesn't it, in the build up to these matches at Anfield. What do we? What do you make of it? Um, I, th- I think I'd be feeling better about it if Everton had got a win against either Fulham or Manchester City. Uh, it feels like very quickly over the course of probably a couple of weeks, we've gone from a situation where everybody was pretty positive about this season and where it was going to um, a lot of negativity, a lot of negativity, mm. particularly after the, the Manchester City game. Um, so I don't think we're heading into this. I mean... I don't think the supporters are heading into this this um, feeling particularly optimistic for the game, particularly because it's at Anfield. That being said, particularly if Dominic Calvert-Lewin is fit, 
and uh, Ancelotti suggested he could be um, when, when we spoke to him after the game on Wednesday night. We'll get another update today on Friday. But if, if Dominic Calvert-Lewin's fit, I see routes to success or at least routes to troubling Liverpool in, in the game on Saturday. I don't think, without Van Dijk, I don't think they particularly coped well under the high ball. They've had a couple of surprise defeats at Anfield. They beat Leipzig in midweek, but I don't think they're quite the formidable force. They're certainly not the, the formidable force they were last season when, when they obviously won the league. So maybe this shouldn't hold quite as much fear as it would have done last time or the time before. Calvert-Lewin's back if, if Richarlison's on it again. And I thought Richarlison was much better in midweek, by the way, get, getting himself a goal. Um, I do think Everton can cause this Liverpool side problems. What we'll see, I think we'll almost see a rerun of the Manchester City match insofar as it'll be Liverpool with the majority of the ball, Everton looking to deprive space and then looking to hit via a set piece or a counter. That's the better way to play Liverpool. Make no bones about it. I think if you that the higher you push up the field, as we saw in the Martinez and Koeman and various other managers, the more dangerous they are. They thrive in the space in behind through Mane, Salah, Firmino, those guys. So I think Everton will look to do that and then we'll look to kind of shuffle them wide and try and stop the crosses into the box. Really intrigued to see who starts at centre-half. Don't know about you. Um, yeah, it's going to be a big call, isn't it, with Mina being out injured? For me, it's got to be Godfrey and, uh, and Michael Keane. That was, that was going to be my next question, actually. Who, who do you go with and, and why? I mean, it, it's obviously a choice. It's, it's two out of three. But in reality, it's probably one out of two because I think Michael Keane is your shoe-in. And then it's, do you use Holgate there or Godfrey? Are those guys needed elsewhere? If you kind of go with four centre-backs and Luca Dean slightly further forward again, um, that's what intrigues me about the Everton selection. If Calvert-Lewin's fit, as we know, he'll start. Alan uh, wasn't risked, wasn't quite right on Wednesday night. So they'll check on him again and the last we heard, they were a little bit hopeful that he could play some role in the derby. Be really important, not just for this game, but for the rest of the season to have a player of his quality and experience back. While Davis and Ducore have done well, they've had to go time and time again. So reinforcements will be most welcome uh, long term. And let's just see how it goes, mate. It's, it's one of those games where, I mean, the, the, the cliche is that anything can happen and form goes out the window. I don't normally subscribe to that, but I do see areas that Everton can exploit, particularly in the Liverpool back line. So um, hopefully Calvert-Lewin's fit and they can get some joy. Yeah, well, anything did happen almost, it felt like it in that game we're going to discuss now in 2013-14. Um, before we carry on, let's just hit a clip of a truly tumultuous and dramatic Merseyside derby. Piece of the game to Liverpool. Gerrard's delivery, a header, and it will come to Coutinho, who puts Liverpool in front. Disastrous start for Everton. We'll have to wait with Baines to whip this free kick in. Might fall here and it's in! Kevin Morales! What an incredible start to this Merseyside derby. Kevin Morales at the Everton end makes it 1-1 after seven minutes. Gerrard just about gets it to Suarez who gets the foul. Formidable goal-scoring record, Luis Suarez. 
It is Suarez. Oh, wow. Liverpool in front again in the derby. It is going to be Romelu Lukaku. A real bullet deflected. What a save. Mignolet again. Morales onside. Can he get it in? Lukaku! Everton level. It'll be a Kevin Morales corner for Everton. Whipped in. Lukaku! Distan concedes a silly free kick. 89 minutes of play so far and in! Another twist in the Merseyside derby! There we are. It was an absolutely fantastic game. Uh, so, as ever with Martinez and, and Everton, so close to, to, you know, to achieving, obviously beating at Liverpool at Goodison isn't sort of the... Uh, <laughs> The, the task that beating a man field is, but it's, nevertheless, it would have been a massive result for him. Um, and then just fought, fell short. You know, we obviously Sturridge did, as we just heard, crept in. But it was nevertheless, it was a thrilling game, wasn't it, against Brendan Rodgers' side? One where, you know, Everton arguably uh, in the height of their powers in many ways under Martinez, or, or certainly in a, in a groove. And um, yeah, they faced adversity in the game, lost, lost Leighton Baines and managed to get Gerard De La Feu on the pitch. Uh, what, what a derby that was. <laughs> it had absolutely everything, uh, apart from, from from an Everton perspective, the, the three points right at the end. Yeah. And they did come close, but but let's be honest, that was the roller coaster that was Roberto Martinez's Everton. <laughs> yeah. even, even in the first season, when you rightly say they were at their, their, the height of their powers, they were at their absolute best, they still um, struggled to keep the back door closed for, for any sustained amount of time. Well, just where to even start with the match? Um, obviously battled back a few times and got themselves in a position to win. I thought Lukaku on the day was almost unplayable. Uh, loved the bullet header into the Gladys Street and the celebrations after that. Yeah, brilliant goal. It, it, everything just took off, didn't it, after that um, from an atmosphere point of view. If it, if it already hadn't before. And yeah, we, we kind of got the one of the first kind of real signs from Lukaku that he was kind of a key, key player for Everton, a guy that would go go out and score goals. I, I love the way Everton went toe-to-toe here. I mean, we speak about kind of regressing into shape and, and looking to be defensive against the, the supposed big teams. Um, Everton are a big team too. Everton a big club traditionally. And um, at this point in time, they really did go for Liverpool and they almost looked to, at the time, they were kind of slightly in the ascendant and looked to to kind of stamp that home. Came very, very close to doing so. But they played on the front foot. It was kind of Morales and De La Feu taking players on. Barkley looking to kind of knit things together in the space. Lukaku rampaging around the pitch. Um, obviously scored a couple of goals. Um, and then the controversy with Kevin Morales, um, Liverpool fuming at a Kevin Morales tackle. Um, yeah, do you remember make, that? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> make a bit of a habit of that in most side derbies, didn't he? Just um, it, it kind of he was right up for those games. Yeah, um, and always showed his best in those matches. Like I remember him doing similar at White Hart Lane a few times, and just kind of reserving his best performances for the big occasion. Such a talented player. Um, but it was another case of what if. Didn't defend well enough at the end with with storage. Um, should have kept that goal out, and then we'd have been talking about a 
a really good victory that reinforced Everton's dominance at the time. Um, what, what a game of football. <laughs> Quite simply, what a game of football. It was. It was an absolutely terrific game of football. Do you know what? I'd take a repeat. Maybe the uh, maybe the blood pressure wouldn't thank me for it, but um, I feel that uh, it sounds so defeatist, but then, you know, do you blame us? I'd take a draw at Anfield tomorrow. I, f- I feel it is going to be a draw. My personal prediction would be like 2-2. But if we can get a game as entertaining as that with plenty to write about, I'll be happy. Just before we wrap up, I'd, uh, I hate doing this to people and I hate it, people asking me, but I am going to ask you for a prediction. What do you no. think? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it, so this, this is the point in the pod where I make myself look like a fool. Well, don't we all when it comes to derbies? Yeah. Go on. Yeah. Um, right. I will go slightly optimistic and say that they'll get a, they'll get a draw. Um, using a similar blueprint to the one we saw against Manchester United at Old Trafford, similar blueprint to the one against Spurs at Goodison in the in the cup win. Uh, Everton seemed to be better in that kind of style, that kind of approach. I think the pe- people like Ben Godfrey are obviously really important because he's one of those guys that will just get people fired up, get people um, running into challenges and will do so himself. Um, like I say, I just think if Calvert-Lewin plays, and it is an if at this stage, then Everton, I've got a route to goal and a way of really troubling Liverpool. Um, so obviously all results are in play, but I'll, I'll, I'll go with a draw like you and I'll say 1-1 or 2-2. Well, there we go. Bursting with <laughs> relative optimism on the <laughs> on the Glad Tidings podcast on this Friday afternoon. Um, <laughs> Friday afternoon. We'll see what whether or not our predictions come to pass, but we'll certainly we'll uh, we'll see a lot of intrigue and, and maybe more likely than not a few lively tackles, a la Kevin Morales, uh, Richarlison, and so on and so forth. And you can guarantee, as ever, there will be a lot to talk about on next week's episode. Thanks very much for, for tuning in this week. Don't forget to check out our piece on Tom Davies, who I hope goes and and uh, sort of really caps off his, his return to form with if he starts or comes on with a, an impressive display at Anfield. We'll leave you with that thought. Uh, a local lad, they're not many left, having a decisive say in a Merseyside derby. Who knows what could happen? Thank you very much for listening. Athletic.